everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turn It to Punk Footnotes. I am one of your hosts, Damien Abraham, and your other host, as always, is my friend and your friend too, Chris O'Toole. Chris, <laughs> how are you, buddy? Good. What an intro again. <laughs> Thanks. Well... I should have. I just should have sung uh, "Motorheads." We are the road crew because you are back off tour. <laughs> yes, not tour, but yes, I, I had to work performances. Yes, <laughs> we are the road crew. Now, 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 now. So, how was that? Was a good time out there on the road with Ancient Shapes? It was great. Yeah, I, I, I have no complaints. I it was actually my first time working a concert at the legendary Lee's Palace, which is the first. Um, yeah, it was good. I have uh, nothing, uh, nothing terrible to report, which is always a plus. But uh, yeah, shows were very good, and uh, I'm happy to uh, have been involved. Well, that's great, Chris, because I'm very happy you are back safely from the road. Because we get to talk about your favorite subject tonight, professional wrestling. <laughs> yes, of course. Today we're going to be talking about the Sami Zayn episode. And, of course, I'm being a little bit facetious. Chris is not the biggest professional wrestling fan. He prefers to watch the sport of soccer. <laughs> Over wrestling, yes. I, I or, must confess that much, yes. Or, or foosball, as like they like to call it, too. Um, <laughs> sure. so we have called in an expert in the field and I'm not just saying that to, to hype up this gentleman's appearance on the show. This person is an expert, not just defined by myself, who I do believe he is an expert in this field, but also host co-host, one of the hosts, I should say of the number one wrestling podcast, according to what culture, <laughs> Please welcome, for the first time ever, the inspiration for Turned Out of Punk, Wei Ting. Wei, thank you for coming on the show. Oh my God! Wow. Uh, do you, do you, are you this nice to all of your your footnotes uh, guests? Damn. We don't invite too many people. That. This is a very this is a very exclusive club, as Chris can attest. We have very few friends over to the clubhouse, right, Chris? Yeah, I think it's been what it's under. I think this will be five, correct? Yes. No. Yeah, I think it makes five in total. Yeah. Well, I'm honored. Thank you so much for inviting me onto onto this edition of uh, Footnotes from Turned Out of Punk. I've been waiting for my chance to get on this. I wouldn't know how I would have been able to get on this, but I'm glad I kind of fit fit in with with uh, the theme of this episode. Well, way I have been wanting to have you on for a long time because I I'm the one who should be thanking you because as I just said. You and, and your lovely host, co-host, John Pollock, are are key inspirations for me in podcasts. I'm a huge fan of post-wrestling and, and all the other podcasts you have done over the years together. So, uh, you know, it was you guys and Colt Cabana that I really owe a debt of gratitude to for inspiring me to do this podcast right here. And... Way you and I were talking about this just before we called Chris. At one point, Chris, I don't even know if I've told you this. Originally, Turn It a Punk was going to be co-hosted by myself and Way Ting. Really? Yes. Remember that way? Uh, 
No, actually, like Chris, that that was just as much news to me as I think it was to you just now. I I do not have any recollection of that. Very very little. Uh, but I think how, maybe how it started was, I mean, Damien, was this before or after we uh, worked together for a, li- a bit on that uh, that the the uh, Vapor Central? This be- this before that. This was before that. This oh, was, this was back when I was starting Turn It a Punk. I was calling you for advice on how to, you know, the the how to do a podcast type thing. And originally, the show was going to be me doing an interview with someone, and then I would. You and me would do the wraparounds at the beginning and the end of the interview. Right. Yes. Yes. Now I do remember. I mean, I, I, I really don't know how I would have been able to live up, I think, to, to what you've created right now. Uh, my, 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 I'm not a punk at all. I did never I never turned into a punk. Yes. I never turned out <laughs> yes. a punk. <laughs> so I don't know how much I would have been able to offer. So I'm 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 really glad to see that you managed to find I think you know a much better solution for for your audience. Well, I appreciate that. I think originally the idea was that because you didn't know anything about punk, I, it would be an opportunity for me to kind of like break down the episodes and kind of do what ultimately footnotes does. Um, you know, so it worked out for the best. So way I appreciate you saying. No, Damien, I don't want to work with you on this. <laughs> it, there are plenty of other things I would love to to work with you on, but but I, I feel like you made the right choice for this one. I think it did work out for the best, but I I do uh, I do once again owe you a debt for a lot of things when it comes to this podcast, and, and including coming on today's episode. Thank you so much for coming on today's episode, buddy. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I guess before we dive in, uh, Way, you mentioned you're not really a fan, or not not like an anti person, but like not particularly a fan of the genre of punk rock, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think much like uh, many people my age, I, I grew up all around it. Uh, a lot of fr- a lot of my friends are into it, but it was just never really a, a genre that that necessarily. Uh, Probably captivated me as much as perhaps uh, the two of you or many of the guests that you happen to have on. But I'm certainly not anti-punk at all. And uh, in fact, I think the 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 ethos of punk and I think the uh, just the DIY attitude of it is something that that I happen to really love about it, and that I maybe kind of look for in, in all the other things that I I do. Uh, so whether or not it's it's through the music, I mean, I, I do respect it a lot. Well, Chris, it's something like you and I have you know, talked about at nauseam now, mainly me forcing you to talk about it, but wrestling, it feels <laughs> like, you know, based on a lot of the guests we've had on Jimmy Havoc, Matt Cross, uh, Rocky Romero, and of course the legend, Robbie Brookside and MVP, the legends, um, you know, like it feels like wrestling, it's going through an amazing moment on the independent level uh, as what you can attest to way, but it also feels like, the generation of wrestlers that are kind of leading the charge, not for all of them, but a lot of them are punk or punk adjacent. Well, this is the, <laughs> this is certainly trying to, to weave the fabric of, um, I, I admittedly, as you pointed out at the top of the show, I don't follow contemporary wrestling enough to be able to speak on who follows what, but yeah, certainly everyone you've gotten on recently and interviewed, actually not even recently per se, but everyone you've gotten on the show related to wrestling seems to have a knowledge of it. So I, I believe that so far you're on the path to bring your, uh, your thesis. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, I'm, I'm personally really surprised. Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but no, no, go, like, please. as somebody who follows 
wrestling for so so much. I mean, I'm constantly surprised at the people that Damien is able to to bring into this whole uh, uh, connection, uh, the punk and, and wrestling connection, as as he calls it. Like, I had no idea people like MVP were as into the scene as as they are. Even a Robbie Brooks side, I don't think I would have ever known about it. So uh, it, it it comes as a surprise to me too. Yeah, like I, I to be honest with you, it comes as a surprise to me. Like I knew. When I started this thing, I had heard a rumor about Robbie Brookside being in a punk because of the guy, the all ages, all ages records in London told me that he'd come in there and bought some records. And I knew about CM Punk because he, of course, wears it, wears it very much on his sleeve. Um, and, but that was it, you know, like I think the, the thing that's really surprised me is, you know, like when Joey Janela puts up a t shirt that says New Jersey's hardcore. And Chris, you'll appreciate this. It's very much in the style of like, uh, 98 era youth crew revival shirt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like it's, and so you like, even though Joey Janela isn't a punk, you know, never has identified himself as a punk, but at the same time, like he's clearly punk aware enough to, to rip off the graphics or Zack Sabre Jr. Who, you know, is shouting out death Haven and nothing all the time on Twitter and has a shirt with ripping off the infest font. Uh, for his font on the shirt, you know, like, it's just like little things like this where you're like, my gosh, it's, it's, it's almost everyone. Well, I think, I think what speaking to, I guess what I find the most intriguing is since you're bringing up all these contemporary wrestlers, again, who admittedly I'm not terribly familiar with, but certainly CM Punk was one that I believe, um, at least for me, transcended culture enough to kind of like make his name larger than the, the wrestling spectrum per se. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time I noticed someone really referencing a, you know, like specific subcultural thing, which is the whole straight edge thing, um, which I found kind of interesting because not really, again, not following it like in recently. Um, what I find interesting though is if you look at sort of the history of wrestling, I don't really recall and again i'm struggling to think that maybe i'm incorrect here but i can't think of an example of anybody really doing that prior to to these examples we're saying like or that you've brought on the show that's the thing i find more intriguing because if you think about it you know even in the 90s at the height of like green day or, or things like that i don't really recall too many people are if any really taking that shtick or even using those songs as as like ring uh entrance music or you know even like the idea of like the ramones not really being referenced in like 80s wrestling yeah i think it's kind of bizarre or like you know any of that stuff i just think it's it's crazy that it seems to have taken this long to to sort of permeate or at least be able to be utilized in that spectrum i don't know i don't know how to you know, I, I'm assuming you, you guys as more avid wrestler, watch uh, wrestler wrestling watchers. Pardon me. In recent years, you may have noticed that change, but uh, I only started hearing anything about that since CM Punk. So I don't know when he first came into wrestling. I don't know when that would be. Probably about ten years ago, maybe. No longer than that. When, when was that way? Like in the '90s, right? Late '90s, early 2000s. I feel like early 2000s is when, like, I, I became aware of him, like, with his run in ROH. But, I mean, did he start probably prior to that? Uh, he very well could have. But uh, as far as, like, a, an international name, I really only started to hear about him maybe, like, 2002, 2003-ish. John, John Pollock, you're, once again, your co-worker, co-host on Post Wrestling. Oh, the biggest punk. 
the biggest, biggest punk, punk of all. <laughs> we call him punk rock John around these parts. <laughs> yeah. um, but he has he he of course has done incredible interviews as you know for years, and he did one with Bob Mold uh, around oh. the time of the end of WCW or after WCW. When did that happen? That interview? Do you remember way? Well, it was certainly after WCW. Yeah, and yeah. in that it interview, w- it would have been. Yeah. He, he, well, in the interview, he talks about bringing CM Punk's name to WCW towards the end of his tenure there. Is that right? Wow. And I remember John telling okay. me about that. Yeah, you could be right. So it must have been 2000, right? Like he must have started wrestling. But And there was, prior to him, there's Vampiro, of course, who brought the Misfits in for the legendary angle, which, of course, leads to the greatest moment in Turn Out of Punk history, Zach Blair and MVP <laughs> saving the misfits from the macho man randy savage check out episode 101 of the podcast um because it is a doozy um but vampiro and then of course bob mold and then i you know i found that photo and it's a macho man randy savage like giving like a firm handshake embrace to to uh johnny ramone and uh what's his name the singer of the band vom like the pre-angry simones band used to write about wrestling for rolling stone magazine and and uh, what's Greg Sage from the Wipers, of course, played on the Beauregard LP, the professional wrestler Beauregard, who was a big territory wrestler in Portland and did some stuff in Texas. So it kind of goes all the way back. But you're right, Chris. No one really, really went for it in the way that CM Punk did. Like CM Punk is is certainly the guy that I think, you know, I I, I would say for me, you know, was really the guy that that wore it proudest on his sleeve and in, in his name. <laughs> it, it fit really well i think with uh the aesthetic of of what uh I, his professional wrestling character was i think you know i think as, as a type of music and may certainly maybe the fashion uh, mm. uh, of uh hardcore punk if it's it can come across very aggressive which i think is a very positive thing for professional wrestling and being a very a combat a combat a combat sport so uh it made him look cool. It made him look different from anything that you would typically see on the WWE televisions. Uh, and it made him seem very current at the time. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And I think I think the other thing that's amazing is you think about, you know, this analogy that, I, of course, bring up to Sammy. And I've brought up on the show before, so excuse me for bringing it up again. But, like, the idea that ECW is the, the Velvet Underground, <laughs> the Stooges, and the MC5. Um, and then like what happens now is like the actual punk stuff that happens. So I think CM Punk, if you continue this ridiculous analogy is almost like the sex pistols. Like he's such a confluence of, of time and space, but he brought about an entire revolution in wrestling. Like, you know, go on. I I really, I really like the analogy. I I guess like my follow up to you, Damien, uh, like what would, if, if ECW was, you know, the Velvet Underground and the Stooges, what would that make the attitude era of the WWE when they tried to take, I think a lot of, you know, that, that aesthetic and, and, and uh, made their own version of it for, for the mainstream. Uh, way, I don't know if you're familiar with the pejorative term cock rock, but I would say it's the, it's the <laughs> cock rock, you know, cause like that's, got it. that's the thing about bands like Motley Crue and bands like, like all those bands, they they were they thought they were continuing the legacy of the bands like the Stooges and the Sex Pistols, and they thought they were the the inheritors of that crown. Like Motley Crue does, like uh, is it? Do they God Save the Queen or do they do Anarchy in the UK, Chris? Mm. 
I always get confused because Megadeth does one and they do the other. Right? Yeah. I can't remember which does what. Yeah, and they were like, you know, so they both, I imagine both those bands fashion themselves as like the true inheritors of punk rock. Um, so, but like, wow. and I think that's like the Attitude Era is that kind of thing. It's like super macho and like you go back and you listen to it or, or watch it and I don't get a lot out of it. Like, and I know that's like heresy to some people, but like the Attitude Era itself to me was like, I don't know. There's not a lot that I hearken back to like being great. There's a lot of great wrestlers that were kind of held down and did some interesting stuff in spite of what was going on. But I look at this period right now in pro wrestling, like even last night at SmackDown, it wasn't great. It was not great, but still there was a match on there that was better than anything I would have seen on TV during most of that attitude era. Certainly, certainly. But, you know, that said, like, there are a lot of people who love Motley Crue. A lot and, of people, and, yeah. And, and like you said, you know, there are uh, – I mean, we look at Steve Austin. And I yeah. feel like if you're thinking about somebody who, you know, maybe can can embody that kind of really aggressive, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I don't give a fuck attitude. It's it's that character. Absolutely, Wade. And I'm with you. And that's why he's the Guns N' Roses. Because <laughs> Guns N' Roses might have been playing in the field with a lot of other cock rock artists, but the reality is Guns N' Roses were working on a different level, you know. And then also to continue this analogy, Guns N' Roses are problematic because of that song One in a Million and Stone Cold Steve Austin <laughs> is problematic because of his uh, violence against women stuff. It all works. It all uh, works. You're convincing me. I tell you, this works. This, that's the thing. Uh, I don't know way if you're familiar with a uh, punk icon by the name of Ian Mackay from the band Fugazi and Minor Threat. Yes. Well, he had the audacity to step to me on this theory one time. <laughs> and really? Chris O'Toole will attest that it was like it was like a Braun Strowman squash the way I handled him in that argument. Right, Chris? <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, if it means <laughs> go that with it was it. a fairly... A fairly even uh, debate. <laughs> Not that really. Was. What was his? <laughs> what was his argument against it? Why and why did he feel so passionately against it? Well, you, Damien's framing it a little out of context, <laughs> of course. Well, uh, but, uh, not how I remember it happening, Chris. But go on. <laughs> of course, Damien's point, which he's brought up on the show numerous times, is that wrestling is the most punk adjacent what do you say physical activity physical activity yeah physical activity so his art so his mm-hmm. argument which is that you know in most of the history books and the most people skateboarding is is the most commonly associated you know physical activity with skateboarding right uh, or sorry with punk rather so the the debate ensued when uh mr kai found it absurd that damien would bring that up and and but to be fair, Damien has since plucked a lot of examples which help his argument, which he actually didn't use at the time, some of them. Um, but anyway, it was it was in good fun, certainly. But yes, I I still think most people tend to err on the side of skateboarding if you were to break it down. I do think, though, and again, also because I don't follow contemporary skateboarding all that well, um, much like wrestling, I don't know who represents you know, the sort of modern punk things in skateboarding, much the way you point out to me all the wrestling ones all the time, Dave. So it's a hard one for me to weigh <laughs> uh, with a real objective uh, perspective. I, I say, dudes, step to the challenge. Send me punk skateboarders to have on the show. 
I don't want to prove you all wrong about this, but the reality is <laughs> I constantly prove them wrong on this one. And Ian said, there's nothing punk about professional wrestling. That's what started the debate. Yeah, that's true. I'll give you that much. That is true. And, and I think your recent um, examples prove otherwise. Yes, I agree with that. Now, he's probably thinking about, you know, uh, like professional wrestling as is it's existed throughout the years and maybe not necessarily modern professional wrestling. Um, I, yes, I maybe say I'd say well. so, too. But I think like if you look at the modern world and this brings us up to this weekend way, uh, maybe explain mm-hmm. to Chris for a second what's going on this weekend and the significance <laughs> of what's happening right now this weekend in wrestling. OK, so this weekend uh, in Chicago, um, so basically how this happened was, are you familiar with the Bullet Club, Chris? I am not. Okay, so they're basically kind of a, a, a faction of professional wrestlers uh, in that started off in New Japan Pro Wrestling and kind of became its own very big, popular NWO-like stable. Okay. Uh, and, and they're filled with a, a, a number of wrestlers, namely Kenny Omega, who you might have heard of, the Young Bucks, Cody. Uh, and at some point, I think it was uh, Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, the preeminent journalist of professional wrestling who... Uh, when asked a question about whether a Ring of Honor could sell out a 10,000-seat arena, Ring of Honor being, you know, um, I think a very distant second or third promotion in the uh, uh, North American wrestling industry, um, Dave said no. And so Cody Rhodes, who is a, a Ring of Honor wrestler as well as New Japan, he says, uh, I'll take you up on that, Dave. And so that started the uh, talks of what eventually became All In. And by the time tickets went on sale for this 10,000-seat independent wrestling show, they sold out in 30 minutes, less than 30 minutes, which was really, really unprecedented. So what's kind of become of it now is it feels like it is sort of like a a, a real statement, I, I would say, from the independent. And uh, they're not even so much independent anymore, but I would say from the non-WWE, non-corporate uh, um, you know, uh, feeling uh, professional wrestler out there, uh, and and, and if it, it's it feels like it's you know a bunch of wrestling fans banding together to support this alternative to the WWE. Gotcha. Yeah, I get that. I think is it. Would you say it's something akin to like a? I know perhaps stylistically not, but like a, something akin to like a modern ECW idea. Um. Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Origin. Go- well, I I, think, I mean, I think they are independent. Wait, sorry, no, I just I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think like to me, these guys are still independent in the sense that they sold this out without any promotion attached to it, and I think that's the thing that makes this kind of a punk moment in pro wrestling is because the means of production in in wrestling that's making people into stars is now in the hands of the artists. Like these guys have a YouTube show, Chris, called. Uh, being the elite, being the elite. yeah, sorry, yeah, way, and it, it, it's, I don't know, way. Would you say that's like one of the most popular things in professional wrestling at, on a whole? Certainly, to me, yeah. I mean, I think we're, you're talking about, about an industry that that I think has been built on television deals, uh, being used to to kind of build personalities. And I think with the advent of, of social media, YouTube, um, guys like the Young Bucks are figuring out ways to tell compelling stories and sell their own storylines and characters without the need of this corporate backing. Uh, and they're doing it through this very successful YouTube series that many, most weeks, 
I would say are are doing a more effective job of entertaining the audience and and selling matches and selling characters than what you would see on on the mainstream television show. So uh, that very much kind of all lends into again the DIY uh, aesthetic of this whole thing. Yeah, I think that, I think that's interesting. I never thought about well, one, I wasn't aware, so obviously I didn't know, but. The uh, the idea of like a, a YouTube program presented by wrestlers or something that that seems to be, if not outperforming at least on a, on a cult level, mm-hmm. um, capturing an audience. But I think it, this all speaks to what you guys brought up a little earlier, which is which I would argue the the, the attitude era. And when I can speak on that again as a what I would clarify as a, as a non modern wrestling fan, you know, ignorantly. The Attitude Era ruined wrestling for me. Like that's when I got out. I didn't. I no longer watched. So sort of that's my end point. And what I feel like happened, which is what happened, was that when the only game in town became whatever they are now, like WWE, whatever it's called, it clearly you know the monopoly made it very uninteresting because the product that they then put out was very very. I don't know. I just thought it was very bland. Very, it didn't it didn't appeal to me. There was very few wrestlers in the Attitude Era that I felt were were of any worth. And for me, The Rock kind of coming out of it, I liked. Uh, and I would say Gold Dust, and that's about it. Other than that, there was no one that I can recall. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm failing. Anyway, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because what you're talking about now, what you just mentioned, I believe is all byproduct of that. Um, whatever the homogenization of that industry and i think it was only a matter of time like a lot of other industries as well i think that's happening in music as well but i think that doesn't surprise me in the least being that i don't believe the product has been the greatest thing in the world although i there's another show now again ignorantly i comment on this what is the other there's another uh wrestling wrestling promotion company wasn't there on tnt or something it is that's not wwe is it no that's tna impact um and they're yeah it's they they had a run. They're they're coming back, but it's a very much a distant number two. I would say, you guys and this oh, is not even yeah not even two. Yeah, you're right. Like I would I and this is a this is, I'm stealing this from your you way and and John, but I would say the number two promotion in the world right now, or at least in America right now, in North America right now, English speaking North America, I should say, um, is the Bullet Club. Oh, okay. It's a, yeah. I, I I think you can make that argument. I mean, do you consider the Bullet Club as the promotion behind All In? Yeah, I consider that the promotion behind All In. I also consider that like really those guys being you know like kind of part of New Japan. But like, I think a lot of America's interest in New Japan comes from mm-hmm. watching those guys right now. Um, or yeah. that's like a gateway for a lot of people in America and in, in Canada, I should say, and and the UK. Um, and I think, like, those guys are kind of like, you know, wherever they go, like, if they were to show up in another promotion, like, if they were to show up in MLW tomorrow, I think MLW's position in wrestling would rise dramatically. Like, I think they could kind of, if they showed up in Impact tomorrow, it would be really interesting to see where Impact went again. It is very true. Yeah, I think they're certainly the hottest act, and uh, still to this day, uh, over the past several many years, they like really I would say the driving force I think behind this like current independent renaissance, uh, all those guys. Um, but you know, I I do feel like uh, obviously it's a New Japan owned property, and I don't I think like if if Kenny Omega wasn't having those classics with Kazuchika Okada, I don't know if 
the Bullet Club would necessarily be as successful as it is today. To me, like, I think they really kind of uh, gained extra, extra, extra momentum after, you know, that Wrestle Kingdom match between Kenny and, and, and Okada. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I feel like those things can't be understated either. Oh, absolutely. And, like, that's not to undercut any of the other talent in the world. And I'm not, you know, and, and they, they are super talented. And I don't, like, you know, but I'm not, I don't think it's even a debate about who's the most talented wrestler. I just think as far as people that have figured out, and I would say, once again, continuing my music analogy, if there was going to be a Fugazi in this wrestling world, <laughs> I think that award goes to, and should, you know, that, that mantle goes on, uh, Colt Cabana. Because um, Colt Cabana was the guy that when he got fired from the WWE or let go from the WWE, he went out and started a podcast like years ago. Was that seven years ago, Way? Eight years ago. You certainly one of the first. Yeah, one of the first yeah. people and really went out there and was like, I'm an unabashedly proud independent wrestler and, you know, took the means of production into his own hands. Like prior to that, if you got fired from the WWE and you can correct me on this way, like most of the time you would go back to the indies kind of working your old gimmick that you had on TV and kind of milk your TV run. And Colt. Yeah. Colt ignored completely his TV run because there wasn't too much of it, but also because it wasn't, you know, the great stuff they were giving him and kind of went back to the indies and just built himself into, into this like machine that eventually like, you know, starts this pro wrestling tease company with this one hour Mm -hmm. tease people that were sponsoring him and put the means of making merchandise into the hands of the pro wrestlers. A hundred percent. I would agree with you there. Like if there's sort of a godfather of, I think, this entire movement, I mean, you can certainly look at the success of the WWE uh, hired, you know, CM Punk's or or Daniel Bryan's. But I mean, I, I do think it's cool that really kind of have has crafted that path of like using social media to to build a following, mm-hmm. using uh, podcasts and creating your own merch and selling your own merch and and just being an entrepreneur in, in this current independent wrestling landscape and, uh, you know, making his own documentaries. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, 100 percent. Cole Cabana doesn't get enough respect. No, and I really think at this point it's it's kind of amazing when you think about how much the game was changed by pro wrestling tees. Um, and, and obviously guys were selling their own merch and stuff prior to that. But like, just the fact that like now, Chris, the most, the highest selling wrestling t-shirts, uh, at hot topic are bullet club shirts. Wow. They're they're because of once yeah. again, like, see, and I've never heard, see so much of that. Go on. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think so much of that too, is because the WWE's own creations have just been historically terrible and and often just really lacking of i think uh fashion sense and just taste so i mean i feel like that that game was really right for the for the taking from from anybody with any sort of like cool like uh i don't know uh intuition and certainly the guys at pro wrestling tees uh have that and and i would say a lot of wrestlers themselves have that yeah like it definitely you know it it, the graphic is something that was catchy and and stuff like that but i think it was also like, you know, that pro wrestling tease making that shirt accessible to anyone with an internet connection that was hearing about these guys. Once again, on podcasts, like hearing about Anderson and Gallows on the MLW network doing that podcast with Rocky Romero and just being like, oh shit, these guys are awesome. I want that shirt. Mm-hmm. And you could order For it. For sure. I think so much of this too is like, you know, it, it's. It, 
what what I think makes all this stuff much more accessible in the modern era versus maybe the nineties is is the internet really like. Mm-hmm. Print on demand, Shopify, these are all things that uh, if you like just Google on YouTube, you'll see like kids starting their own businesses and 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 making money, making good money, doing very simple things that are very accessible to, to set up. And and I feel like pro wrestling has kind of miss missed that until something like a pro wrestling tease came along. Like I think we're we're talking about a lot of wrestlers, perhaps older ones, who don't necessarily know how to do it. But the technology is out there and and it's very accessible and a lot of the the younger generation knows how to do all that stuff now and and pro wrestling is is kind of like, you know, catching up. Yeah, and I think the thing is it's you know, pro wrestling it was like a sleeping giant for so long in terms of media. Like you look at the, the the social media presence of all these wrestlers and just compare that to people in music or compare that to people in in you know film. It's like these people have massive social media followings, which I think is reflective of the fact that pro wrestling is huge. And I think advertisers, I think broadcasters, I think so many people underestimated it. And now I think people are waking up to the fact that this is like a huge thing. Um, but we should are talk. We, Go on. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, should we be talking about the Sami Zayn uh, interview? Well, wait. This is the way footnotes <laughs> normally goes. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it normally does not wind up talking very much about the subject at hand. But Got yes, Got it. we should tackle what is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done of this thing: the Sami Zayn episode. Uh, Sami, of course, is. Uh, a, a legendary figure in professional wrestling. Uh, there's, it's going to be hard to talk about it without talking about his friend that he knows who's disappeared off the face of the earth, El Generico. But uh, yeah, anyway, be, between the two of them, they have quite the history in professional wrestling. And I think once again, like, you know, one of the precursors to what's happening right now, one of the people that kind of brought this era that we're in right now to, to us. I agree. Yeah, certainly. I, I would say, like, you know, uh, I think certainly you can look at, you know, Brian Danielson and, and CM Punk joining the WWE as, as kind of one of those big moments. Uh, but then, like, right after him, you know, you had the likes of uh, of Tyler Black, Seth Rollins, and uh, Sami Zayn. Or, uh, yes, Sami Zayn. Uh, and he is only known as that. Just coming out of nowhere. Yeah. Right yeah, but NXT. Yeah. I think him and, him and Steen, though, like – you know, like when when Punk got signed, like obviously all of us that knew about Punk and and Brian Danielson were like super stoked, but at the same time, it's not like the company appreciated either of those two. Uh, and yes, and they were not given any sort of real platform uh, for for a while. Like they both, I think, you know, it's fairly safe to say, had to kind of fight for the positions they eventually obtained. Well, Brian was actually fired at one yeah. time. Yeah. Fired a couple times, actually. Yeah. 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 And which is uh, amazing now because, like, you know, from SmackDown last night, he is certainly the most popular guy in that place all these years later. Um, But it was was really cool to get a chance to talk to Sammy uh, about this stuff because I knew he – you know, like, the reality is, Chris, in 2018 – I think, you know, he's probably the most important person 
skanking right now. Like, you know, in terms of spreading the ska punk movement, like, I don't think there's any band out there right now playing that kind of music, reaching that kind of audience on a weekly basis. No, I guarantee you're correct, and I don't even know what you're referencing, but yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Wade, do you want to... Go on. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Sami Zayn comes out to a ska theme song that was written for him. And, you know, in a wrestling context, I think it's really great. Nobody yeah. else has that type of music. It makes him stand out. He does this, like, uh, skanking, as you call it. Skanking, uh, yeah. As, entr- <laughs> as he walks to the ring. Uh, and he does it well. Um, but, like, I, I think I was surprised to hear from you, not necessarily in your interview, Damien, but, like, off air, when you told me that he's not even really, like... That's not certainly the only music that the guy likes, yet it it has become his identity now. Yeah, like I think he, like a lot of us in punk, you know, who aren't necessarily fans of ska punk, but like we love Operation Ivy. And I would describe him from the conversations (laughs) of being in that camp, too. That's not to say he doesn't like other ska bands and other ska music. But I think, you know, from my conversations with him, uh, he he wasn't necessarily talking about – you know, uh, some deep cut ska music so much as we were talking about Operation Ivy, you know, like, I think he's, he's like an Operation Ivy guy. Yeah, I think I, I understand completely what you're saying and not really understanding. I, based on what's described, I get what you, what you're getting at is what I'm trying to say, but, uh, it's a hard one to, <laughs> to parse, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like, a, a weird it's, thing. I'm trying to think of a, a wrestling analogy for that. Like, what's the wrestling analogy for, like, someone who really likes Japanese wrestling? Or, sorry, it would be like, like references something Japanese wrestling but doesn't really follow Japanese wrestling. What is that? It, you know what I mean? or, okay, so it would maybe be somebody like, who loves, like, Rey Mysterio but not necessarily a fan of Lucha Libre. Yeah, exactly. That's a yeah, better one. That's yeah. a good one. Or, or I think, or, like, even, like, someone who really respects Pimpinella as a wrestler – but doesn't necessarily like the genre of exoticos as a wrestling genre. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but okay. Yeah, I barely know what that is. So don't worry. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's only because I made an entire episode of an unseen TV show about it. So that's the only reason I'm so, so familiar with it. Uh, <laughs> Did uh, you ever... Damien, did you ever do the HMV scam that Sami Zayn talked about? A hundred percent. A hundred. Chris, wow. did you do that? I, nobody clued me in on that at all. Chris, I never you? did that either. Oh, no. the worst was eventually they got a system that could scan the barcodes that were like BMG or Columbia House CDs. Because prior to that, <sighs> you could buy a Columbia House or BMG CD and return it for full price there at, at HMV. But then it would make this like really like – like um very uh humiliating sort of like tone <laughs> you were trying to sell me. Uh, they all say the CD yeah, that you didn't like. Yeah, yeah. No, I would I would try and get a job every year at HMV. And we talk about it on the episode with Chris Slorak, because Chris Slorak from the band Mets tried to get me a job there several times. And for whatever reason, HMV <laughs> deemed me as unhirable. Like wow. every time, every time. This guy knows way too much. This guy has been returning yeah. way too many Columbia House CDs. 
<laughs> so did you ever get caught? Uh, returning that stuff? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I never stole from it, though. I had friends that got caught stealing from it, and they would fucking press charges. Wow. Yeah, so, but I got Let's caught. Where, like, they were like, you can't return this HMV brass balls, whatever, like, the record after the Razor's Edges. Um, and I'd be like, oh, shit. And they're like, yeah, it's from BMG. And I'm like, oh, shit, my grandma gave it to me. I didn't know. Like, it was no big deal. <laughs> wow. No, I never knew of that scam. I didn't really even, at first in passing, I didn't really get when it came up in the interview. I didn't get it. I, I understand completely now what you're talking about. But um, I don't, I never knew anyone that did that, though, either. That's a that's a clever way. I'm, I'm kind of bummed I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely a good scam to pull at HMV. And the other one was Sam the Record Man would do a price match. Um, and then for a while they didn't know about any of these, like they wouldn't call the stores to find out if it was real or not. So you could be like, oh, at like Record Peddler, this CD is like nine ninety nine, and it would be like a twenty three dollar CD, and they'd be like, okay, so they'd make it eight ninety nine, and you'd be like, yes, got this CD of you know. I'm sure they're of... begging for those days now. Oh like, God, yeah, when people actually still cared about buying cds oh god yeah yeah like that's the thing it's like what killed the cd industry greed mm. you know like those things cost pennies to make and they were selling them for like 23 dollars yeah pennies to print but i mean come on you can attest to how much uh, time and effort goes into making uh writing a cd oh absolutely but we live in a time where i'm making fractions of pennies for everyone you buy yeah you know, mm-hmm. like like a decimal point, like, yeah, it's not a decimal point of a decimal point of a decimal point, you know, like it's not great right now for streaming money. Um, and it was probably better in the CD time. Well, I, we've had guests on the show, like uh, talking about how, like, back in the day they were like killing it because they were selling like 10,000 CDs a year at, you know, five bucks each actually doesn't. Add up to much money now that I break it down in my head. They're selling hundreds of thousands <laughs> of CDs at five dollars each. <laughs> that makes more sense. That yeah. makes more sense. That makes a lot more sense. Uh, how, how much would, would an artist typically make off of a like a fifteen dollar CD? Uh, like a dollar. Yeah. Maybe mm. yeah, two dollars. Mm. I heard sometimes people had good deals, but like even then, if that maybe I think. I think the difference that you're referencing, though, Dame, is that I think for for major artists, I don't think many things have changed. I think the big sellers obviously make money because there's so many whatever streams and all that. And back in the day, they were moving units, you know, to that level. I think the big change is that the independent people, um, at least at first, didn't or don't or perhaps the the bigger way to to weigh this is that there are um, like things like Spotify, Apple, whatever, all the streamers, streaming services, platforms, they that sort of oversee who you know who gets on those platforms. They've made it so that all sort of anybody who gets on gets sort of like a really poor rate that you would have got on a major if you were like a failing uh, group. So say like back in back in the nineties or whatever, say. You're a group that doesn't that gets dropped after one record because you're you're poor sales or what have you. Now, sort of everybody has those kind of like sales, 
But what mm-hmm. used to happen before was if you weren't on a major and you were on an indie, you were actually still at least selling enough and making enough because you kind of controlled it all or you got a way bigger cut. Now the cuts are all the same and the sales are all, you know, the same as well, but the money is not. You're no longer getting that bigger chunk is I guess what I'm trying to say that you would have as, as an indie back then. Even even on a major back then, you would have gotten more than like – I think I get like a hundredth of a cent for every play. Yeah, that's true. But I think what what the difference is, like if you take, you know, the the breakout, like like quote unquote SoundCloud rappers as a good example, those are the success stories of the modern game, right? Because they're these are artists largely coming out of nowhere, making like one song, not even an album, and getting huge money just because they get, you know, a, a, a sort of a viral hit or a stream, right? Whereas that's what's successful now. As far as like streaming is concerned, that's what you kind of aim for because you don't have a label and whatever. Back back when, if you're independent, you might not get like you know a million stream or million sales right away, but you could get you know like you were saying earlier, like you could sell maybe a hundred thousand units on the year, and that's pretty good if you're getting full price for it. That's the difference now is that the only ones that are really seemingly like making a dent are what would be you know what would have been the previous independent you know use uh, or whatever. Uh, uh, comparisons are much larger now. You know, it, it takes like a million or two million to even make a splash seemingly independently now as far as streaming is concerned. Yeah, like, but I still wonder if those artists would be making more in another era, you know, being as popular as they are, if they were selling that many records as opposed to that many streams. Well, would they ever have had deals? Yeah, this is the thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about like what the internet opened up, and like that's where once again the analogy between wrestling and, and punk, you know, and music, I think, uh, holds true. Is like when people in wrestling were finally able to like no longer tape trade, but just watch stuff on the internet. It opened up a world to so many people. Like you could go on the internet and just learn about all Japan. You know, and become an expert in all Japan and then become an expert in Noah and then watch all this stuff. And you had now you had seen some of the best wrestling ever. So your standard was that much higher. And like the wrestlers were watching this stuff, like the generation of wrestlers that we're getting to watch right now in the ring is the generation that that benefited from the Internet explosion, I think, like or, or the DVD explosion prior to it with wrestling when you had accessibility of all this stuff for the first time. But like you're seeing these guys that, that grew up watching like the best of the best stuff. And it's opened it up so much now, as far as like the stuff that's happening in the ring. Completely. And it's the reason why guys like Liger uh, continue to receive like some of the biggest reactions anytime new Japan comes here, because I would say, you know, the vast majority of people that I think start watching Japanese wrestling, they start off with shows like the J cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, to this day, I think if you want to see the same character from that Super J-Cup 94 appear in, in, a, in a live setting, I mean, you can still get that with Jusen Liger in his full Liger gear. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, certainly. Like Sami Zayn talks about it, uh, kicking him in the head, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, him being a legend. And, and uh, yeah. Another thought I had, you know, in, in this discussion, if we're talking about, like, music and, and, and wrestling, it's that – I think part of the reason why wrestling seems to be so coveted these days is that it is some pretty piracy proof. 
you know, at least a, a, a compared to, to something like music or, or many other uh, media, uh, you know, you can certainly bootleg like a New Japan show or something like that. But I mean, I feel like most fans are going to want to watch sports live and therefore would be willing to pay the $10 a month for a New Japan subscription or $10 a month for your WWE Network subscription. Um, you you can't pirate the live experience. You can't pirate a T-shirt. You can bootleg it, but I mean, who's going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's also part of the reason why wrestling is so coveted now, not just amongst fans, but but amongst advertise- or, uh, TV networks, I'll mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. right. Yeah. I think the live element too in person is is something to be said. I think that's where that and music coincide big time. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. like with wrestling, obviously the spectacle is is what is the magic. I would argue largely. So much like music, when it's done well, you know the live experience is sort of unparalleled. So I think that those are things that are, and I think per- perhaps I could be wrong here. You two would certainly know more than me, but on the independent level for genuine independent wrestlers i imagine obviously that's how they make their money by the live appearances rather than you know i don't even know if certain guys have tv deals or whatever it is now um so like independent music that's how they're they're grinding it out right most of the guys are paid less for tv like not at the wwe top end where i'm sure you're paid more if you're on tv obviously but i know a lot of independent companies where guys are taking pay cuts to do stuff on tv yeah, which I I get that though because it's the idea is the exposure yeah. is is way out the the whatever the the front end paycheck, but yeah, I, I either way I, I think there are parallels. I, I'm just uh, whatever. I think uh, I think those two marry well in that comparison. Oh, absolutely, yeah, definitely. I think it's it's you know it's it's kind of like amazing how much stuff is is similar between the two worlds, but you know ultimately it does come down to the fact that you sneak backstage at. 90% of the band shows like I would not want to sneak backstage and run into Fletcher from Pennywise per se but you know you sneak backstage at a show worst that's going to happen is the band's like hey get out of here best thing that's going to happen is the band's going to take you under the wing like how many people have been on this podcast Chris that have some story about sneaking backstage and like the person in the band ending up teaching them how to play guitar or something so you're saying it's more it's more accessible to do that in a music context is what you're arguing? Definitely, because if you do that in a wrestling context, they would stomp the shit out of you. Oh yeah, I would imagine yes, but I, I think as well like what is the tradition? Like, yeah, I, I think you're correct, but I also wonder like, is there a tradition of I'm at some independent event and I'm just you know some some giant fan of, of whatever wrestler or whatever like you know organization. And I go back and I just, I really aspire to be a wrestler. And then I, you know, I break bread with someone who is a wrestler and they sort of, perhaps they find it endearing and they take me under their wing or, or guide my career in some way. I think that, is that as far-fetched as like having that experience with someone in a band? I don't know. I think that's probably could happen. I don't, I don't know if that ever happens with fans, but yeah, I mean, so I would rare. say. So rare. <laughs> I, no, because the, the 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 I think the 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 bar of entry into professional wrestling is so is very different than you know simply uh, picking up an instrument or 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 you know um, uh, joining a a band like you have to go to a wrestling school. Most people at least do that, and then after that, it's just like I would say years and years and years of breaking your back um, and and just bleeding in order to get into this club. So. 
I mean, I think there's a big difference there between, you know, music and, and wrestling in that one feels like it is still it could come across like a real kind of uh, boys club um, because or, or fraternity, because I think, you know, it tends to weed out people that aren't uh, tough enough for it. Uh, it's probably have to had to fend off much public criticism from people calling it fake uh, traditionally. So it seems much more on guard for its uh, for people joining in. Whereas, I mean, you could probably you guys could speak better to this, but like it seems like with music. Uh, there feel it, sometimes it feels like it might be more of a you know hey I used to be in your position um, you know you can do this too uh, you you know like yeah what do you guys think about that I think I think music is is more inclusive I would agree I think it's because I believe re- for me I think wrestling is, is a trade mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. if not a trade it's it's similar to a trade so it's like you know there are quote unquote secrets to the trade or whatever and like any other sport. I believe there's also the idea of that, you know, the training that you apply, you know, you also have your either natural ability or ability you gain within that. Therefore it, you know, elevates you accordingly. But I don't think music has that same formal metric. And I think if it does, it's crap like the voice or, you know, some nonsense like that, that really isn't indicative of what, you know, music <laughs> is. So yeah, I, I would agree there, but I also think music suffers slightly <laughs> for that because I don't, think there's any, uh, there's no, largely there's no bar is what I'm trying to say. So you get a lot of, uh, you know, mediocrity, but, but no, I mean, is the bar not success, you know, does, does the attention from the public and, and ultimately success determine whether or not you're, you're a good musician? Uh, I think it depends on who you're trying to appeal to that level of success varies. I think as Damien and I could speak like on this program, I think what's successful to us is not what's successful or like what we've had, we've had, we have experienced, pardon me, is mm-hmm. certainly not more. Damien has experienced more than myself, obviously, but um, like I, I've never been even close to it. Whereas Damien has has felt a little, you know, you felt the praise, Dave. You've been on magazine covers, right? Yeah, but that's so also when I was hated by another swath of people that, you know, I think my tastes were much more <laughs> in line with. Sure, but that's exact. But you're proving exactly what I'm saying. Like, yeah. So. You, there's success on one level where you, okay, you might get more eyeballs and therefore, in theory, you get more money. But the, then the other idea is that perhaps what you're trying to appeal to is is what you feel the actual success is and maybe you're shunned there. So the yeah. idea of success, you know, it just varies on what you're – in the punk world, it's a tricky one because – and actually, I believe in this very interview you did with uh, Sami Zayn, he speaks to that, the idea of like the selling out idea. Yeah. And the idea of what, you know, what, where that actually plays in and, and how rel- I would argue, I think he was bang on and saying like, I think he was saying historically, but I think now that the argument is how relevant the notion of selling out is and what that truly entails in, in an era where a lot of people basically make no money in music anyway. And mm-hmm. the idea of playing it is out of love, much much like the way people you know encounter wrestling or what have you. Does that notion still exist with the current crop of, of punk fans? Yeah, millennial yeah. punk fans. It still yeah. does. Oh, yeah. oh, I would say still even yeah. more. Like, there's like, see, like, there's like a, a true punk, like true punk, true hardcore. It's like the most political shit ever to this day. I would say more now political. I don't mean shit in like a bad way. I mean like that's why it's pure. That's why it's awesome. That's why it's never going to change because it's like, yeah, just as, just as real now as it was, you know, when we were doing it and before we were doing it. 
It's interesting to me because like it almost it always seems to me like, you know, this millennial generation is an entrepreneurial generation and, and one that doesn't seem to like I mean, we're talking about uh, like the these the popularity of rap music and, and, and I think showing affluence is, you know, a sign of, of being hip. So uh, it's interesting for me to hear that. I, well, it, I think it's the it's sorry to David. No, no, like, I think there is I think there's a bit of a you know, a schizophrenia when it comes to the idea of that in the modern context. And I think the reason is because of things we've discussed. I think the way people make money now, I think you're bang on by saying, I do think a lot more people are, are more savvy and entrepreneurial in all the right ways. It's just, it, the, the metric for selling out isn't, isn't necessarily like in the punk world anyway, from what I have observed, isn't always the money issue per se. It's the, the, the level of compromise or, or the sort of the manner in which you go about it in some way, if, mm-hmm. if it's not a political affiliation, then it's a, uh, I don't know how to articulate it. Damn Disingenuous. Me. Yeah, there, there's, there's different levels to it. I don't think it's strictly because I think on the show, you've had a lot of successful people, Dame, that I do think are mutually and well-respected, including people you've brought up in this very topic already in this discussion tonight that are, you know, historically have made money and no one has any gripe with that um, because they've done it in terms that are quote unquote pure to, you know, whatever people are weighing it on that metric. So I think that's the, that's the trick. It, this is always the debate we, Dame, I don't know how, if you've ever heard it on the show, way, but that's the, do you always have the Ian McKay on your shoulder is the idea. In punk. <laughs> you know, you always have that you know, with every decision that's made that, you know, whether or not that is a reasonable thing to project on a, on a human being such as him, it's mm-hmm. very much the, you know, the, the, the zeitgeist, it seems. Well, it's also it's something that I go think on. makes, sorry. No, go on way. Well, I was just going to say, it's something that I think always like really interests me about punk. The fact that like, it, it's not just a form of music, but like a code of ethics that other forms of music don't really typically have for, for its listeners. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is like, you know, punk is like the secret engine that has helped drive us to the place we're in right now. You know, like I think a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit and a lot of like culture and the way culture is gone has been shaped by these twin forces of hip hop rap culture. But punk in the DIY ethic and punk, like, you know, you look at the impact it had on Def Jam Records, you look at the impact it had on, like, uh, you know, like, just music, like, just film and TV, like, all these people that are, like, influenced by it that have wound up being power players in various media things, like Vice, like, it's amazing how much of the world we live in is shaped by professional wrestling, uh, rap, and punk. (laughs) Dude, the President of the United States is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, you know, like, our, our mutual friend, Court Bauer, <laughs> broke it down that Donald Trump, like, when he was there, he was, like, studying the whole time. He was just, like, paying attention. And it's really, like, his run in WWE is where he's introduced to his base. That's where he's a babyface to his base. He was Stone Cold Steve Austin when he was in WrestleMania, you know, like, standing up to Vince To so some people, he's Stone Cold. So some people he's still Stone Cold Steve exactly. Austin. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like yeah, that's yeah. why he that's when he became Stone Cold Steve Austin to those people. And that's when it began. Mm-hmm. Like it really begins with wrestling. Yeah. Like the world we're in now, 
for better or for worse, <laughs> is owed to pro wrestling. Hey, well, I'm gonna do, if you want well, to, I mean, what we're really <laughs> what we're talking about is is really just like I think um, uh, politics and like uh, po- the ability to kind of manipulate uh, an audience an audience's perception, isn't it? And, and also, it probably also, does better than many things. Well, and also, like Chris, I don't know if you're familiar with this, and this is something that I'm sure fan uh, fans of this podcast that are pro wrestlers will cringe hearing me bring up, but it's the idea of kayfabe too. You know, it's like the idea that like we know that what a politician is saying is complete bullshit, but we're going to believe it because we have to. Well, when you only have two, I mean, what can you do? Right. Yeah. Like the best one. Yeah. But, but even then it's like, even, even I'm sure like the people have to know that what they're hearing out of the politician's mouth, even if they love that politician and believe in them, is a little bit of a lie, you know? And for sure. But you just you just gotta accept it. Or they project they project onto them what they believe they represent, which I think is something that happens in wrestling as well. Absolutely, it happens in life, life in general, but mm-hmm. certainly wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Uh... I had a lot of like really cool experiences last year, like doing that wrestling show. But one of them is I got to like sit down and, and, and talk to people that were around during that Donald Trump kind of run and just hearing about it, like really drove home. Like, Oh wow. Like, yeah, like this is, he's out there cutting promos, like in, in a way that he must've learned during this, this run in the, in WWE. No doubt. Yeah. But, I mean, you could say that about any politician, can't you? Yeah. You know, like, is Barack Obama not a great baby face? Yeah, absolutely. He was a great, great uh, baby face. But I think at the end of the day, uh, uh, like, it's a little less cynical. And maybe I'm just yes. because I'm more on side politically, but, like, it felt like a little less cynical of an era. Sure. Yeah. Maybe maybe that was to the well, fault of the era. Maybe it'll feel better – Maybe it'll feel better when The Rock is president, and then you can weigh how big the wrestling chops are in relating to the presidency. <laughs> Can't be worse. <laughs> no, I agree, but oh. I just mean that's when you'll really know what, how you feel about the effects of wrestling on on populism and uh, and politics or what have you. We we haven't even broached the idea of uh, someone like a character like Jesse Ventura post wrestling. Wrestling has a lot of uh, a lot of ties to this, uh, or even like uh, what's his name, Ultimate Warrior. Like, there's a lot of affiliation with with politics and wrestling. There always has been. Um, to get back to the music, uh, those sampler CDs at five dollars and ninety eight cents, Chris O'Toole, come up once again yep. as being a key gateway. Yep. Well, I think that's that's of our generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and no wonder. I mean, I think that it makes perfect sense. Actually, if anything, I think it's. I, I kind of wonder if there will ever be a phenomena as effective in uh, in the future of marketing this sort of music in any way, because I think that was a uh, pivotal. Like, if you really think of people that you know don't have a lot of means, I mean, it's it's crazy what you get for that money. Yeah. If, if back in those years, like. I fortunately was not, you know, was not uh, hard done by, but I certainly still 
uh, bought those or, or heard them or what have you. But yeah, it makes sense. The, thing, the other thing I think is the distribution of those was like oddly amazing. Yeah, they were not difficult to come by either, mm-hmm. which is another feat in the in the punk realm. I believe there's probably some analogy we can make to wrestling on that too, but I don't know what it would be in a modern context or like or what have you. Well, how, how would somebody? Go on. Sorry, please. No, no, go on. Great, please. Uh, I mean, I was going to say, like, how would somebody even do something like that today when music is just free uh, everywhere? You know, like, I think I think it, it's you, it's no longer five, five ninety is no longer a deal. Zero dollars <laughs> is no longer a deal. So yeah. how do you do this? Yeah. Well, you see, with that's the, the controversy right now in music, Travis Scott, right? Like uh, Nicki Minaj is calling him out for uh, selling uh, T-shirts to help sell records and stuff, saying that he's trying he was selling clothes. Um, and that's why his record got so high on the charts. The idea that it's not on the merit of the music alone, it's it's based on the, you know, whatever, the merchandising along with it. Uh-huh. Because Travis Scott is considered a, a fashion icon at the moment. It'd be like Kanye with his new record if you could only get it buying, like, whatever, a pair of shoes or something. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how fair of a criticism that is. Really, I, I just think it's really clever. I don't think anyone can fault that idea or him capitalizing on the idea of him being hip at the moment or whatever. I think that's brilliant, but yeah, does it elevate the idea of sales of the record? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's still a record with a Drake appearance and all this other stuff. on. I don't think that's away from anything. I know. I think, well, I was going to say like, if that, if that can work now, like, I don't know why Pepsi Cola doesn't sign an artist and make the album come free with every can of Pepsi and make the first like 1 billion selling record. I think I wouldn't put any of that past anything. I think that will happen probably. You know what I mean? I think something that will will come about based on all this. Like every- because of what Way, Way, Way was saying, I don't think there's a way really to to sell music as just music because now the value of that is is it doesn't, you know, there no. arguably there is no value. The only valuable now, value now which Damien and I are unfortunately slaves to or fortunately slaves to depending on how you look at it is the tactile, you know, the the album or whatever, the mm-hmm. the vinyl record in whatever form like whatever form you want it. Mm-hmm. But again, that's a very, you know, luddite manner of of consuming this if you're being real. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I just I hear that and I just think of it's, you know, it's somebody trying to uh, act a, like uh make money by selling a, a tactile good that that accompanies the music right um these days i mean it feels more like like uh music is more so your free your free sampler or your free advertising for either your tour or your clothing line or something else that actually does generate income which is funny because i remember seeing an interview with mike watt the bass player of the legendary punk band minutemen uh who's who's famous for also doing these amazing tours way he did this incredible record that's i would say a turn of punk footnotes favorite right chris the uh, powerball tugboat record that he did <laughs> yeah yeah which, certainly a dame favorite yeah which way is like the ultimate 90s posse cut like it's every famous of, of a record i mean it's every famous artist from the 90s pretty much on it from the world of rock and alternative music i should say um what is, is on it this guy mike watt his solo record powerball tugboat 
Um, okay. It's got like cool. Eddie Vedder on it. It's got like Evan Dando from the Levenheads. It's got like uh, all like Dave Grohl and Chris mm-hmm. Novoselic and like uh, Beastie Boys. Members of Sonic Youth and yeah. Dinosaur Jr. and Beastie Boys and all the, you know, prominent names of that era. Red Hot Chili Peppers people, like everyone who's, you know, anyone from that time period in the world of alternative music is pretty much on this record. Um, I.E. No Billy Corgan. <laughs> another another punkin wrestling connection. Yeah. Yeah, not well no well, Billy not, Corgan not didn't make the punk. record. Not a punk. Not a punk way. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. No, hey, that's fine. <laughs> I would say he's about as beloved in the punk world as he is in the wrestling world. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well stated, Dan. Well stated. Um, <laughs> I don't even know his how much he's hated the wrestling world, but I can imagine based on what you said. <laughs> I don't know if he's hated. Not hated, but whatever. Not uh, not thought of majorly fondly. Or Wait, you weren't at that CZW show I was at when he had the NWA guys come out and do a match. He was not beloved that Well, night. yeah. Um, oh, I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, that Mike Watts' quote was he was talking about how back in the day, bands used to put out records to promote tours and how that was like – what they did and now then tours at the time that he was doing this quote which was the 90s tours were used to promote records and help record sales um but you're right it's it's gone full circle it's back to what was records intent in in the before time yeah is that a good thing or a bad thing you think uh have you been on tour (laughs) <laughs> no, I, have not. I, have not. <laughs> I would prefer to be paying f- from royalties if i was in a position to be paid from royalties uh for me it's amazing no matter what but like being on tour can be a little tough sometimes which sounds like a super whiny comment but chris can attest no yeah and i, I haven't done it nearly well i've done it in a working sort of uh crew context way more than a performing context so I do think there is a large discrepancy there because I do think performing takes like, you know, you're, there's more, you're more invested and, and therefore the high, high, the lows are much lower. I think as like a crew member or someone that's not as invested, it's certainly hard, but it's not as, uh, you don't have as much on the line. You know what I mean? How, however I'm saying that, but yeah, yeah, it's difficult. I think the difficulty is that the, it's the, um, weighing the, the future, right? Like, like now, okay, you're you're trying to you know this sell the tours or what have you, but I think you know how does that go in you know for some people twenty thirty years? Like, is it really mm-hmm. feasible that you're going to continue doing this? Is it you know whereas before you had enough catalog or enough royalty building up perhaps that there seemed to be you know that future regardless? Now I think it's you're going to see a lot more actually to compare it to wrestling. You're going to see a lot more of those sort of cautionary tales of like the the real grinds of yeah. the, you know, people really, and you're actually, I do believe you already see it. I think you see it with the large names now, like you're seeing big, big acts in the nineties, at least that you could have perhaps seen at stadiums and you're seeing them play, which again, this is no coming from an independent standpoint. I don't think this is, a, you know, anything to be ashamed of, but they're playing rooms of like, you know, sometimes a thousand or less people now. Yeah, you know that's like Dice Clay in his prime playing. You know the stadiums now he's playing like little comedy clubs. It's that you know, and there's no no shame if you like your craft, but it's certainly humbling. <laughs> and the only reason they're doing it is because the money isn't you know the money isn't guaranteed. They have to. 
So that I think that is similar to wrestling. Yeah, definitely. And like knowing wrestlers that have, you know, wrestled their whole lives, like in much in the same way of music, it's, you know, you can make a lot of money at the top end, but the reality is for the people kind of on the mid to kind of like, you know, bottom end, it's a grind and, and you don't have a lot to show for it at the end of it. And your body's broken down much more in wrestling than it is in music. But you know, like a sure. lot of people drink every fucking night in music and end up, yeah. that ends up dragging their body through a ringer. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I think any kind of lifestyle like that is, is obviously because I believe, you know, wrestling is to me as a sport and therefore, you know, there, there is that toll that comes with it. Like there's mm-hmm. not many athletes you see taking part in their crowd. I think wrestling is actually a pretty astounding one. When you think of how many wrestlers are, pursuing it like into their 40s you know as opposed to you know like uh i don't know like any like nba or or you know like any kind of soccer football whatever hockey you know it's very rare <laughs> but again it's like many people i think do because they have to or or yeah, maybe yeah. they are making the most money of their lives at that age and it's sure. taken them that long to get that notoriety yeah. Yeah, but it's certainly it's to the detriment. <laughs> like as much as like financially it might be good, it's certainly not. You know the reason why in in high level, you know sports you tend to not see that. There's a rare examples of these, like these you know genetic you know sort of freak shows that are able to do it, but it's very rare, right? And I think in wrestling again, there's been there's been those cautionary tales that people are aware of, where you see that and how sort of tragic it is right but it's all uh all necessity or not i think in music it's not nearly as hard it's just you're seeing it a lot more because of a whatever uh the same economic constraints or what have you but it's what makes wrestling i think so unique in in, in that like yeah yeah for sports you would never see that because people won't be able to perform at the high level that they're expected to uh in towards their 40s or, or later but wrestling is a performance and yeah. you can cater your your style to the limitations of your body. Uh, there are many ways of, of like, working around it. Uh, and, and there's no real governing body. There's no real competition, uh, per se, that, that requires you to jump a, a certain height or, or last a certain uh, amount of time in, in the ring uh, with your uh, air capacity or whatever. So yeah. for better or worse, I think people can wrestle for a very, very long time, often, I think, longer than they should. Absolutely. Yeah. I think actually it's, if anything, it's one of the most endearing qualities as much as there's mostly when we talk about that, that there's, those are sort of cautionary tale things you, you try. I think there's in sport. I do think people, you know, I think people still would like to see Michael Jordan play weekly. You know, I just think that because it's, do we though? I think people would. I, I really do. I would just I hate to it. see an, an MJ that that's like a quarter of what he used to be. I agree, but imagine you could see him against other people who are also the quarters. You know, I don't know if the... I want to see that. I don't know, man. <laughs> you like the invincibility? Okay, I get. You. I mean, it's like it's like when I, I watched Bret Hart take on Vince McMahon. I think I I love like in what is it twenty twelve or something like yeah, that. Like yeah. I think we love the appeal, but the match was just sad. Yes. The, the, hey, it's certainly there, but I think there are, I, don't, I believe there are an audience that do want to see it for whatever reason. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think there's an audience <laughs> who wants to see it, but I think like, I, I think, I don't know. And with wrestling, like the thing is your body gives out, right? Like that's the thing with a lot of these guys is they'll hit a point where they're just like, I physically can't do this anymore, you know? And like, 
how many guys have died in the ring, you know, which you don't really see that happening in music too often. Yeah, actually, you guys would know this because I'm just thinking of the, the wrestlers that have put them through a lot. But does Mick Foley still wrestle at all or no? Is he done done? No, he's, he's done. done. Yeah, yeah, he's done. Okay, I would assume because I've seen, I mean, I was, I didn't see a lot of his matches, but I saw enough to know that he definitely was. He yeah. he does like honor roles occasionally. He was like the, the GMRI as recent as maybe like a year and a half ago. Um, but he doesn't hasn't wrestled a match, I would say, in a while. Yeah, like he, the, the man has trouble walking around. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I would imagine that that's a, like that's the kind of physical toll, right? When you're doing it at that, whatever mm-hmm. in that uh, capacity. Oh yeah, like the 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 toll is just well, you know, you like any any wrestler you walk around with, they're like it hurts constantly. Like there's just like a constant pain, you know, and like a lot of us have like those one or two places on our body, which is just for whatever reason we've. We fucked it up over the years, you know, and it hurts. But, like, how many wrestlers are just walking around with, like, maybe a dozen places on their body like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's uh, I don't know, like, working on that TV show, like, we saw guys' careers end in an instant. We saw, we worked with guys that, we worked with a wrestler who passed away like a couple weeks, at, you know, we didn't, he wasn't a main person in one of the docks, but a couple, two wrestlers we worked with. One was like a main guy in one of the docks. Um, and he passed away like a few months later. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's certainly a, uh, a real like reality in wrestling. You know, we were working with, mm. we filmed one of those guys in that gatekeepers tag team in Austin theory, dove out of the ring clipped him a little high with a boot and he got his third concussion and uh, that was it. He was, he was done for wrestling forever. Mm. Um, so yeah. Um, but anyway, back to a more un- positive side of world of wrestling and punk connecting. Um, was there anything else you guys were kind of wanting to talk about from this episode? Um, I think we touched on everything that you guys hit a lot of the points I was thinking of thinking less the music centric that way thought jumped out. I thought would be an interesting point to tackle. But other than that, I think we're good. I found there were a couple of really interesting points when, when Zane was talking about how, you know, um, punk sort of being like a, a thing for outcasts very much in the way that pro wrestling was, uh, and, and how, you know, those things take, tend to breed uh, more of a personal relationship with its audience than, you know, things that might be a bit more popular. Um, so, And then he would go on to say that he was he's not really an outcast because actually both things were actually very popular at the time. <laughs> well, especially, mm. especially in Quebec at that time, that style of music, yeah. it, it was probably biggest there than, as it was anywhere else in the world. Right, Chris? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I would argue bigger. Yeah, like it was. There's stories about bands like Lagwagon playing to like their biggest audiences ever, and like all these other bands that like still to this day, like talking to bands on this podcast, like the guys from Chicks Dig It, talking about going to a show there and playing, and just there being thousands of people there to see these bands. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about that style of music that just really connects with hmm. uh, the Quebecois. Is it is it you know fighting from I think the uh, the fighting from beneath sort of the majority of the English speaking uh, uh, part of Canada? 
I, I wonder, like, it's it's certainly not like it's overtly political, a lot of the stuff that they like, you know, like, or that, that we're talking about, I should say. Like, you know, we're talking about bands like Pennywise, Lagwagon, that definitely had political songs, but, like, it certainly isn't like we're talking about, you know, Propagandi or Fugazi. Hmm. Um, I also thought it was uh, really nice of you, Damien, like, uh, to ask him if, like... Zane wearing a mask at one point was, you know, a way for him to kind of hide from the public because it turns out the man seems to be quite a private person. Yeah. You know? And that's very much like like music, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I think Sometimes. so. I think there's like, a, you know, like it's it's very hard also to separate who you are in a band from who you are as a person. And I think that's the thing that I find really fascinating when I talk to wrestlers is that sort of intersection I see with people in bands where, you know, like who you are in people's eyes is not necessarily who you are as a person. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way, but I mean like just like who people construct you to be versus who you are with your vulnerabilities and your insecurities when, when, you know, the cameras go off or the microphone recording device goes off uh, are, are very different people. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah. And I think the problem is when you can't separate those two um, and you end up trying to be what people see you as um, because you're never going to be able to be what they see you as because it's them seeing you that way. And I think uh, – I, I don't know. I, I, I find wrestlers that have other identities very interesting because they have that ability to kind of take it off if they need to. Right, right. Whereas some need to – embody the gimmick and actually turn into their characters full time. Yeah. Yeah. Like I wonder, well, like, you know, you, you, you know, you see it like there's guys that just, you know, and Ric and Flair, it, Ric Flair. And it happens in music too. Like there's people that just end up becoming this sort of total fucking caricature of themselves. Like God, Chris and I have friends and know people that have gone too far in, you know? And I would say some people would even say that I've gone too far in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I know what you're saying, but I don't agree there. I think you're very, uh, despite how you feel sometimes, I think you're a grounded person. Well, that's exactly oh. what I'm getting at, Chris. You know, that's the that's that separation between how people see you versus how you see yourself. But I've sure, seen you at sure. shows, Damien, and like you're there's like it's not like you're you're you're, you're a very uh, egotistical elitist uh, frontman of your band. Like you're very warm to your audience. Anytime I've seen you out there. Like in the same way that you are to your friends. Well, I think I think I I, tr I definitely try to, you know. I, well, no, I don't try. I think I just appreciate the fact that like I'm only able to do this stuff because other people indulge me in that. Um, mm -hmm. Same and, here. Same with me. Yeah, same with you. And I think that's the thing is like, and I think that's why your podcast has been so successful. And that's why I think I listened to your guys' podcast when I was getting into wrestling uh, podcasts and just kind of like feeling what was out there is because. I felt there was a genuineness and an earnestness in your guys' podcast of just being like who you guys are. And that's what I really responded to. And I think that's what, you know, other people, which I have to say, not to put myself over, but I am a trailblazer and I'm one of the original tinglings out there. I'll have you know, Chris. You, you, in fact, you coined the term. You're probably still the only tingling because I have not officially uh, uh, granted that as the official term. Of, uh, not at all. Uh, 
No, <laughs> not all. But I, I, I like to think that I was like on board pretty early on, um, back when it was still possible to get John to give you the archives of the episodes you had missed that happened before that, so you could listen to it on tour. Um, but it was it, like you know, it, it's ama- it's amazing how that your podcast has grown, and it's because I think everyone that listens to it hears you guys being genuine and like hears you guys being normal people. And I think that's the thing in music. It's hard to retain that because like, especially when, you know, there's a party every night and there's just everyone in the world telling you you're awesome. And then also there's a lot of people telling you that you fucking suck and Mm -hmm. that wears on you. And so you kind of start having to believe the people that are telling you you're awesome to compensate mm-hmm. for the fact that there's a couple people telling you, you suck. Um, and yeah, you end up getting in your own head. Wow. It's interesting. I mean, I'm sure even way worse now today, like with Twitter, you know, where every single given night, you're probably getting that tenfold um, from, from anybody in all parts of the world. Wait, but you act like my I, band I, was popular pre- in the stone age. Like that was dealing with it on Twitter too. <laughs> Sorry, what's that? Yeah, acting like my band was popular in the Stone Age. I was dealing no, with Twitter, well, too. Okay. I, I, I thought you meant in person. I thought you meant in person. No, no one says um, it's your face. No one ever said it's your face. It was – Right. It's always on, on social media or in the press. Mm. I mean, uh, I appreciate you saying uh, all those things. I, I credit a lot of that to, uh, to, to my colleague, John, who I think – because, like, I'm not a broadcaster – like I'm not I'm, I'm I was trained to, to to talk publicly. I'm a very shy person normally, but then like John just I think like uh, was amused by me for some reason. So he just like walked me into a recording booth one time just to have a conversation, as he said. Meanwhile, he was recording it, and that ended up being I think one of the first podcasts <laughs> we did. So I think we've kind of retained that same vibe throughout the years. Yeah, I think so too. I don't. I don't know anything that sounds like that. I've never experienced anything like that at all. Oh, never. Yeah, it was an ambush. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it, but I think that's also like your guys. Your guys like friendship almost feels like it developed on the air. Mm-hmm. Sure, I agree with that. Yeah, it's been you like know. nine years, and they were yeah. with all the ups and the downs. Way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't have to bring up the fights, but Chris, you, you got to go back through the archives. There were some heated, heated conversations where it felt like the podcast was going to be over. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> some cliffhangers. Over over differing opinions on wrestling. Is that my understanding? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, things kind of get political. Like, we're, we we agree on a lot, but there are things we, we do kind of uh, always disagree about. And, yeah, certain things are touchier than others. And I feel like it's been a while since we've had, like, something that that big. Um, but uh, you, I'm, I'm surprised to hear, like, people like yourself, Damien, like, comment on it because it, it doesn't feel like we <laughs> – it felt like a private moment. Um, but <laughs> – I'm I'm glad like the world gets to see it because I mean I'm always a fan of like that type of radio where like it doesn't feel people are, are kind of really pretending and I don't know yeah whatever I'm like it's it's this is who we are yeah no it, it, and that's the thing is that I think that's that I, I remember going on tour and it's amazing like how many people would come up to me and just talk to me about being on your guys' show like it was. Wild to me too. It it happened like all the time, especially in England. Like at every show, for it felt like a tour. Someone or a couple people were coming up to me and just being like, 
oh, I hear you on John and Wade's show. Like, I hear you on the reviews. Like, I love their show. And, like, you know, and they're all just talking and saying the same thing, you know. Like, it's it's, it's accessible. And I think that's, like, you know, what you got – what, you know, I'm trying to do in music, too, is make it as accessible as and as, you know, obtainable as possible. Do you, do you ever, like, have, have people telling you, like, not to do so much? Like, do you ever worry about maybe, like, um, you know, maybe a same – talked about in, in, in the interview giving away too much because sometimes the audience wants that air of mystery yeah absolutely but i think that's like i kind of view like what i'm doing in the band like differently than trying to build myself into a star you know like i i want to be in a band because i want to show that anyone can do this um mm. and i think like maybe there'd be a little like you know maybe it'd be better with a little bit of mystery but also i don't know like he says that people want mystery but he's got a million point seven some odd followers on Twitter, and those people want to know what's going on behind the mystery. So maybe he's right. Maybe the mystery is the marketing that makes people want to see more behind there. But I think like no matter what, like it comes back to the idea of like having a stage persona versus a private persona. Like you're never giving everything away. Mm-hmm. Um well, I think I think what he's commenting on, at least in the interview, as much as I could understand it, was I think he's referencing the idea that there aren't many people that offer the mystery anymore. Like there are a lot of people that just, or or pretty much everything is behind, you know, shows was fully what's going on, or you know, someone's like uh, uh, tweeting every you know few hours or or minutes of their life. So there, there isn't a lot of mystery anymore. Perhaps that's more of the appeal in the contemporary sense of that um that's the way i took it anyway yeah me too yeah i think so too i think like that's the uh you know and he's also like that like i think that's why i was so excited to get him on the show is because he does kind of like have that air of mystery where like you know i saw him wearing this operation ivy shirt like i knew he was about punk because like robbie brooks i talked about going to an against me concert with him but you know like knowing finding out how much it affected him and how much it impacted him, even though like, you know, he keeps going like, Oh, I'm not a fan. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not like that kind of fan of it. Like, you know, but I think like, it's obvious that like whatever level he was a fan of it deeply, deeply impacted him or like at least, you know, had a great interplay with the stuff that was already going on inside his head. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially formative years you know like that's what kind of music tends to do to people it, it sticks with you for a long time mm-hmm. and i think once again like you said way punk is one of the few musics that also is an ideology mm-hmm. yeah. um, and like it's a place where little kids like sammy and myself and chris can hear about noam chomsky and stuff and and you know hear like noam chomsky <laughs> samples on records <laughs> yeah, so not fully comprehend it till a decade later. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just be like, oh, wow, that's a lot of complex stuff going on there. No, I think, like, thank God for propaganda because that changed my essay writing game in high school forever. Because <laughs> I had, like, all these sources that no one else could touch. Like, I was, like, coming in with, like, crazy, like, people would be like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 Vietnam. And I'd be like, uh, actually, East Timor and, like, you know, like just like totally dropping stuff that I got from like a propaganda record leading me to, you know, this Noam Chomsky book. And yeah, it definitely 
forever changed the way I approached essay writing in school. I mean, it tells you right there, like there, there, uh, maybe there, a lot of people in your position probably got way more out of those records than a textbook. Oh yeah. Um, oh so, God, yeah. I mean, it begs, like it begs the question, are we using the most effective forms of teaching students, you know, well, in and schools? I, and I also think it like talks about like what punk is like the shit I was learning in those punk records is, is way more valid than the shit I was learning in those textbooks. Like, I'm learning in propaganda record about propaganda records about you know Canada being stolen land you know and 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 hearing about stuff like residential schools and like wasn't really taught in my high school Canadian history class um and that's like the reality like I've taught like you know about John A McDonald being this great guy that like you know gave us this amazing country not about the fact that he tried to starve people to death so they'd give up their culture like, you know, but I'm, I'm learning about that on punk records. Um, it's, it was like, you know, like, it's amazing the stuff that I, you know, and, and not just me, like anyone that was listening to this stuff was kind of like shown, you know, and like how much of that stuff is now, you know, like in the conversation versus the stuff that I was actually learning in school. Hmm. Um, yeah, agreed. I'm with you on that. I, I feel the same on that one. Um, yeah, like it's, it's like, yeah, I feel really lucky to have been in a punk as a younger kid. You know, I wish I was more into wrestling than I was. Um, cause I, I think it would have, yeah, seemed... I don't know how many messages about, uh, the history of, uh, stolen land you would have learned from <laughs> pro wrestling. <laughs> Likely not many. No, I don't know if your essay game would have really uh, benefited from watching, um, Nitro. <laughs> i i was watching i meant more like you know but if i was like you know if i if i had been uh, aware of uh, lucha i would have been exposed to some political storylines that are played out in the ring in lucha yeah i really haven't like stepped into lucha at, at all so maybe you can uh show me some of those things well El Hio to trump you know, now he's a baby face, though, so I guess that kind of flies in the way of what I was saying. But when he first came out, like, there's amazing how many guys kind of were able to work a Trump, you know, kind of angle, you know, or foreign wrestlers coming down that were able to play off that um, mm-hmm. with, with, uh, with, you know, the the audiences and how much the audiences kind of react to that and stuff. Or, or Japanese wrestling kind of coming out and, you know, all of Japanese wrestling owing – not owing, but like coming out of American occupation, you know, and like Ricky Dozan kind of cluing into the fact that like, Oh, people want to see Japanese people in the ring beating up the people that occupied us or beating up the people that we're at war with. And, you know, the fact that these people were legitimately one generation removed from actual armed conflict, they were actually beating the shit out of each other in the ring. You know, like Terry Funk says in America, it was a, a shoot we were trying to make look – or in America, it's a work we're trying to make look like a shoot. But in Japan, it's a shoot we're trying to make look like a work. And it's it's like amazing how much politics are tied into Japanese wrestling and like how much of that style, like the strong style or like the MMA ultimately kind of comes out of this occupation of Japan. And like it, it's, it's political at its very core. But even in America, I think you look at the 80s. And, and just Hulk Hogan, mm-hmm. you know, fighting um, the evil foreigner mm-hmm. uh, or 
Um, you know, uh, even as recent as, you know, the, the WWE doing like the Muhammad Hassan angles and, and things like that. Uh, wrestling, I think, will always kind of be tied to what's contemporary, and, and that's typically politics. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think that's the thing is it's it's always political in nature, and that's that's the thing about punk is like punk is always like got this thing that it's never going to be, you know, in the position of complete power. It's just going to be like chirping at the position of complete power and commenting on it. Whereas wrestling, given its popularity, feels like you know it's it's amazing. Like if someone was to go political on like the main stage in professional wrestling, like the kind of reach they would have, like Sammy with his charity, like the kind of reach he has uh, versus a person in a band trying to raise money for a, a, a cause they believe in. Yeah. Um, like, you know, or Zack Sabre Jr. right now with all the, you know, he was in labor campaign ads in England. Like he, you know, is, is a, a face for, for, uh, you know, vegan stuff, vegan causes and things like that. Like he is, I think he's like, you know, uh, a very aspirational person politically. Uh, and, uh, you know, so are you, are you hoping to, are you hoping to get him on the show? I would love to. He and I have talked about it a bunch of times and he was supposed to come on, but yeah, he's, he's ducking me away. I think now we're getting down to the nitty gritty when it comes to people in professional wrestling that love punk and we're, we're checking off some, some big names, but like, there's still, there's still a couple. I hear Becky Lynch is a fan of punk rock. Obviously Ruby riot. I'd love to have on the show. Um, but yeah, definitely. And, and Seth Rollins because Chris mm. Seth Rollins used to enter by moshing. <laughs> yes. I believe you mentioned this to me. Yeah. And there's a, <clears throat> a story way that he used to pull, uh, pull like insane high spots off the amps at wonder Years shows. Wow. <laughs> so, or off the speakers, I should say not the amps. It wouldn't be a very high place to do any moves off a speaker. <laughs> oh yeah. Or off an amp, I should say off the speakers. It would be, but yeah. anyway, it's been, we've been going at this for a long time, guys. Uh, I want to thank you both so much for indulging me on this. <laughs> Not a problem. My pleasure. I mean, it's more and more work for Chris than it is for me. But like, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this all day. Well, <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you, Way, and I'm being presumptuous, Chris, when I do this without consulting you first. But Way, would you like to be the official wrestling expert for Turned Out a Punk? Oh my God! What an honor. Uh, <laughs> I, I would love to. I would love to. Next time you get Zack Sabre Jr. on, uh, yes. call me up. Well, and I think we're going to have to have Sami Zayn on for a part two because he's holding holding my feet to the to to the to the fire with this one. Do it up. Call him now. Call him now. We'll get him on Let's the do air it now. Do we'll it get now. him on the air. We got some follow. I got two Sammy. more hours. We got some follow ups, <laughs> my friend. And also, you know who I need to get on this fucking show? Brian Danielson. Daniel Bryan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, find out once and for all, why the hell did he let Generation be his entrance music for two shows? <laughs> I want to know. I want to know, too. Yeah. Um, Chris, <laughs> h- how do they get in touch with us here at Turned Out a Punk? Well, you can reach this show at Turned Out a Punk Footnotes at gmail.com. And, Way, how do people find you uh, on the podcast Airwaves? And how do they find you on social media? 
Well, if you're a fan of uh, or if you're looking to get into professional wrestling, if you're already a fan of pro wrestling and want to hear me talk a bit more about it with the aforementioned punkiest punk of them all, John (laughs) Pollock, you can check out our podcast. It is called Post Wrestling with John Pollock and Wei Ting. You can just search Post Wrestling and iTunes uh, and Stitcher, uh, Spotify. We're on all those things. Give us a listen. This weekend, we'll be reviewing all in the show that we just talked about in chicago uh if you like our stuff consider uh, um be pledging to our patreon which is how uh, we continue to do this full time uh so that's patreon.com slash post wrestling and you can follow me at way uai0937 on twitter and way uh i i, I this weekend you're gonna be doing live podcasts in chicago at all in i will have this up probably before the weekend is over um, but those are all oh, oh. sold out, right? No, actually, the 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 podcast is is uh, taking place at a convention called Starcast, which is uh, kind of running uh, concurrently with All In. And uh, John and I will be doing a live version of our mailbag show, which is called Ask Away, and that's actually free and open public. So even if you're not go- planning on going to Starcast, you could stop by and just ask a question and, and meet us. Uh, at least during the time that we're doing the show. Uh, so that's taking place at the Hyatt Regency Regency Schomburg, I believe that's the name of the hotel. And we're doing that show from 10:30 a.m. Sorry, 10 a.m. to 11:30 a.m. So that's the, the morning before All In itself. So come by, uh, go to Starcast, meet a bunch of wrestlers, talk to us, and then go see All In in Chicago. And that will be an amazing trip. I'm super jealous that I'm not going to go down there. Uh, also, post wrestling every day when it comes out, it puts a smile on my face. Uh, it really is the best wrestling podcast, not just by my own uh, thoughts, but by a lot of people's thoughts out there. So strongly recommend you listen to it. Chris, you don't want people to find you on social media, but how do they get in touch with us here at this show? Turn it to punk footnotes at gmail.com. There you go. And you can find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. And you can hear me occasionally, even on post wrestling, when Way and John find it in their hearts to allow me to come on and sputter uh, in a very stoned manner about professional wrestling. So, uh, hint, hint, Way, I'm waiting for that call. Uh, but that's it for us. We will see you next week. Next week on the show, we've got another special uh, footnotes episode drop in. It's going to be a super mailbag episode. We're going to be sending out the Dave signal, calling on our Daves. Uh, all our Daves are going to be in the house because these are the days we know we know. David Up and Dave Martin will be on the show to dissect that mailbag and to catch up. We haven't talked to those guys in a minute, Chris. It's true. It'll be good. It'll be great. It'll be amazing. It'll be just as amazing as today was, hopefully, because today was awesome. Way, thank you so much. Chris, thank you so much. And you out there, thank you so much. We will see you next week. Uh, and uh, find me on various forms of social media, at Left for Damien. And uh, that's it. Uh, so tell your friends about this podcast. Bye. <laughs>